This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, everybody, and salut, Babette. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. And how are you, Andy? Um, well, thanks, Viv. How are you? I'm glad to have you back in the studio. <laughs> yes, I know we communicate every Monday, but this is nice to be here. Look, there's a big climate action on in September, September the 8th, which we will talk about at the end. But if you want details, listeners, about that, it's called Climate Rise. Uh, go to the podcast page of, on Beyond Zero Emissions website after this show and look up today's show, which is called What the Frack? And uh, also you'll find two quiz questions. I'm going to ask you the questions now. And at the end of the show, if you send us a message to the um, our email, which is radioteam at bze.org.au, you will get a prize. So I hope some people will be tempted. The first question is, who wrote Silent Spring? And number two, what does the name Santos stand for? Mm. (laughs) And the answers will be actually in the show. You will hear it. So if you know those answers already, send us an email at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org.au. Um, we're going on the front foot tonight. We're going to the Northern Territory and to South Australia. The gas and oil reserves there, if they are exported, would make Adani coal emissions look pathetic. The Territorians had a moratorium on fracking, but it was lifted in April this year. So we'll speak to Tim Forsey, who's been a pro bono advisor and supporter of Beyond Zero since its early days. He's an engineer with great experience in renewable energy, as well as experience in the oil and gas industry. He gave a talk at Melbourne University called What the Frack is Going On and it was about how the oil and gas industry are ramping up just when the climate impacts of our exports are clear for everyone to see. Today, just looking around the world, you can see floods in Kerala displacing over a million people, unusual floods, Arctic melting uh, at an unusual time of the year and the big dry here in Australia. The first stop to stop emissions, the first step to stop emissions is to stop increasing them. So Beyond Zero Emissions and the Australia Institute, which are small think tanks, have put their minds to the Northern Territory fracking sort of situation. And uh, through public talks like Tim's talk, uh, submissions to the uh, scientific inquiry in the Northern Territory and reports, these think tanks underpin the legitimacy of campaigns, such as the campaign on September the 8th, but such as the campaign that I know will be pretty much ramping up in the Northern Territory, as this moratorium has been lifted and fracking will be able to go ahead in April next year. But I just wanted to tell you listeners to inspire you a bit. There's a film, I only saw it last week, it's called The Bentley Effect and it was put on by Lock the Gates Alliance and you can get a copy of that film and show it to your group. Just show it in your sitting room with some friends. It's a marvellous one to give people courage about what can happen in pe- with people power. You see thousands of people from all over Australia camped out and locked on and they did that up at a place called Bentley in the northern rivers of New South Wales. They did that until the thousand police who were sent, who were going to be sent, were cancelled. They were called off and the state government just compensated the gas companies. So right now, our water, our land and our climate is a little bit safer because of their enormous action. And you have to see this film to believe it because most people I know are saying, oh, it's all doomed, you can't do anything, nothing. And I also quake in my boots when I think of the force of the fossil fuel industry, the political power they've got. I worry too. But see that film and realise what can be done. Soon the Beetaloo Basin will be on our radar in the same way as the Northern Rivers and Bentley. So after Tim Forsey's talk, we'll talk to Shah Malloy from the the, uh, Northern Territory Environment Centre and then David Smith in South Australia. He's a farmer, but he went to the US and to Queensland and he made a film called Pipe Dreams, Fractured Lives. So first we're going to talk to Tim Forsey. Hello, Tim. How are uh, you? I'll just get you to put your headphones okay. on. How are you, Tim? Very well. Hello, radio team. <laughs> how are you going? 
I just didn't have my headphones on, mm-hmm. Tim, so I couldn't hear you. Uh, tell us why you made a submission to the scientific inquiry into fracking in the Northern Territory. The, um, as you mentioned before, the amount of uh, you know potential extra fossil fuels that can come out of the Northern Territory uh, can come out of Western Australia, South Australia, even down here in Victoria, uh, as the oil and gas companies want to get into the shale fracking, is just enormous. And I've been aware of the climate emergency even since the days that I was still working with uh, BHP in the oil and gas business. And um, it's just, you know, that was 10 years ago. Now we're 10 years further down the track. Like you said, we're starting to see pretty clearly the impacts of uh, human-induced climate change. There's scientific papers that are attributing particular events to climate change, events that are killing people. So uh, there's certainly going to be any huge number of economic impacts because of climate change, but also people are already dying because of climate change. And I've kind of been banging on about this for 10 years now, and still we have, you know, the oil and gas companies fairly unstoppably uh, wanting to just continue in places like the Northern Territory and some of the basins in Western Australia that haven't really been touched yet. And uh, so you have to wonder, why bother? But uh, the, the other point is that, you know, maybe 10 years ago people could have perceived that oil and gas had some value, uh, regardless of the climate uh, damage that it causes. But these days we've got the renewable energy options, of course. Uh, and this is another thing that I go on and on about. I'm sitting here in my house in Melbourne, mm. and the water is heated by a, an electric heat pump. <laughs> Our living spaces are heated by uh, reverse cycle air conditioners, which are also heat pumps. So in the old days, we used to think that we needed the fossil fuels, we needed the gas, we needed the oil. But it turns out that these days there's actually a lot, lot cheaper and more economical ways to be doing things. So we've got the alternatives that BZD identified a long time ago. And yet you have these companies going into these untouched areas. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And also, I guess you can probably tell from my accent, I have spent some time in the United States. And um, fairly famous for its fracking is the state of Pennsylvania, where they have the Marcellus Shale. And that's the state where I grew up as well. So um, I have been a, a bit aware of what's been going on in the states with the fracking, where really there aren't much in the way of restrictions anymore, particularly with the new presidential regime they have mm-hmm. over there. And that's what uh, the companies would like to get ru- up and running here in Australia. Yeah, well, thank you for making your submission to the scientific inquiry. We're going to talk about the U.S. later with that farmer you uh, suggested I interview, Pipe, Pipe Dreams, Fractured Lives. Um, but... You know, the the scientific inquiry didn't have a climate scientist on the panel. They only had six lines in their report um, explaining the climate consequence of ex- exporting all that Northern Territory gas and oil. And I wondered, why did they bother even having an, an inquiry? Because shortly after the... the uh, moratorium was lifted and it looks like all uh, it'll all go ahead in April if we don't stop it. I wondered, do you think they were qualified, really, to do this inquiry? No, it's a huge subject. Uh, fracking, unconventional oil and gas production and everything that goes with it. I mean, I'm not even across, you know, yeah. 10% of it, probably. You know, you, you got your land access impacts, you got your biodiversity impacts, your water impacts, your you know, your common air pollution impacts that in, in the United States are, is another thing that's killing people, uh, your water contamination, your water depletion, and then you put your, you know, the climate change on top of that, whether it's because of methane emissions and carbon dioxide emissions that occur right in Australia. But as you say, these um, deposits are so large they could lead to another uh, gas, oil and gas export industry, and then that stuff gets burnt somewhere. It ends, all ends up in our Earth's atmosphere. And so you have the climate impacts. So the, um, you know, there's just a huge number of impacts uh, associated with getting into that business. But I wonder how they got away with writing in a report that only has such a short amount on climate. But anyway, look, I first heard about gas years ago um, as a 
they said it was a bridging fuel. And, you know, in the early days of our climate, they said, well, gas, we're going to have gas, but it's only a transition fuel. And the f- um, we heard about fugitive emissions. And the first time I heard about that was when we interviewed Professor Robert Howarth at Cornell University. And he talked about fugitive emissions. I'd never heard of it. And I thought at that time it was very hard to measure the methane emissions. But you told us at the talk about an expensive NASA infrared imaging imaging sort of system. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the, um, one of the problems with the unconventional oil and gas production is that a fair bit of the methane that's produced can end up in the atmosphere. And methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, many times more powerful as a greenhouse gas than the carbon dioxide we hear so much about. So you'd have to work really hard to make sure you didn't release a lot of that methane into the atmosphere. But it does happen, and particularly in America, where they must have like a million uh, unconventional oil and gas wells by now. There was a, a, you know, a fair bit of money spent on scientific studies to have a look at this in America under the Obama administration. Uh, most of that's come to a halt now under the Trump administration. But under under Obama, they were having a bit of a, a look at the methane emissions, and so there's various ways you can do it. You can start at the very the very top, and uh, even from satellite imaging. They can see areas of uh, the planet, areas of the United States, particular corners of states where there seem to be huge amounts of methane being emitted into the atmosphere. And then you can go down to the next level and fly around the place with uh, airplanes or helicopters. And then, of course, you could go right down on the ground with infrared devices, etc., and try to find out where all this methane is coming from. Yeah, one study that I highlighted in particular, and this is the sort of thing that we ought to be doing today up in the, uh, the coal seam gas fields of Queensland where there's thousands of wells already, and no one knows how much methane is being emitted from those operations, what you could do is you can instrument an airplane and fly over the place, and they were in that study by uh, Frankenberg et al., and uh, people could look up my presentation uh, online, no doubt. Um, They were able to identify methane uh, sources. You might call them leaks. I don't necessarily call them leaks because sometimes it's intentional emissions. It's not a leak at all. It's Mm -hmm. just part of the process that you leave all this methane go out into the atmosphere. But they were able to identify, I think in that study, just flying over one little part of New Mexico in America, 250 different release uh, points of methane. And then they were able to go down on the ground and say, okay, what was that? Oh, it was a leaking pipeline. It was an operation at the gas plant. Mm-hmm. It was some drilling that was going on. And they were able to identify these things right down to a few kilograms an hour. So, yeah, the... Um, you know, the thing that carbon dioxide and methane have going for them is they're invisible and colorless and odorless, yeah. and that's why people can get away with uh, putting so much of that in the atmosphere and people don't seem to care that much. Um, but with the devices such as the infrared, you are able to see these gases and to identify them, quantify them. And uh, so, A, that gives you an idea of what's going on. It, it, you know, you witness the event. Yeah. And also, um, uh, you know, if the oil and gas company were legitimate, they would work hard to try to reduce those those emissions. Mm. Uh, one thing I did was to uh, get hold of a infrared handheld camera. If you want to buy one of those, it costs about $150,000, but we, we got one brought into the country from Singapore. Yeah. And I took it up into the Queensland coal seam gas fields and uh, went around there and was able to photograph places where you have continuous emissions of methane just going off into the atmosphere from the operations up there. You can't see it with the naked eye, um, but if you point this camera to pipe, you can see the methane coming coming out of it. And can, so I don't call that is a fugitive. That legal? I don't call it a leak. It's something that uh, is an intentional part of the operation up there. But is that legal? I mean, have they got a license to operate with that kind of um, impact? Yeah, in Queensland, the, opera- the, you know, the license requirements say you're not meant to release any gas unless you have to. No. So that, that is the legal wording. So, that's a loophole. <laughs> so the gas company can say, well, we had to. Yeah. And, that's, and that's, that makes it legal. Oh, so, you're, you know, there's a philosophy there that you're not meant to, to waste this material because uh, some people see it as valuable. You'd think the gas companies would see it as valuable, so why would you want to waste it? And that's where the first line of that uh, regulation comes from. Uh, you know, you're not meant to release any gas unless you have to. And so that would have been the wording that the gas companies got put into the regulations that... You know, if they feel the need to do something, they'll do it. 
Okay, so just to summarise for the listeners, we can measure now the local emissions of gas. So if they opened up this new province in Northern Territory, they could measure it, plus the emissions when they're exported to another place can be um, also measured. And we've recently had a case in in the United States where the city of New York actually sued um, ExxonMobil and other big fossil fuel companies over Superstorm Sandy, like connecting that, attributing that Superstorm to the emissions that had been added, and those are the companies who added them. So do you think companies now should start thinking again before opening up this huge new oil and gas field? Is it a bit late in history to be opening this, I'm hoping you'll say? Well, of course course it is. You know, the days to be opening up new, huge new fossil fuel provinces. And, and like you say, um, you know, there's been a lot of interest in Australia about this uh, so-called Adani coal mine up in Queensland. But when you do the numbers and if all the potential oil and gas from the shales in the Northern Territory get produced, well, that's, you know, many times bigger than all the emissions that would come from the Adani project. Same thing over there in Western Australia. They have so much shale over there. If that all got produced, it's many times bigger than the Adani project. So, yeah, it's not the time to be doing this, but this is what oil and gas companies do. And so you do have companies um, such as Origin and Santos who are involved with, and, and some smaller smaller companies who are involved with pushing this, and you'd ask why, and it's, well, it's because it's what they do. So they really haven't worked out uh, other ways to make, to make money, um, and they would see it as their responsibility to their shareholders to mm-hmm. try and keep the share price... Uh, from falling, and so that, that's the way that they can justify going into these things. So until it's illegal, until the you know the people and uh, and their representatives say you can't do it, well they're going to keep chasing it because it's what they do. Yeah, well, look, I only learned today in researching this that Santos stands for South Australian. Northern Territory Oil Search. I didn't know. I thought it was just a, a family name, but it stands for that. But I now I know that, and um, I feel that these fossil fuel companies have a terrifying degree of political power, and yet you said they persevere even when they're making a loss, and that Santos and Origin have recently lost billions in their Gladstone plant. How did, how did you explain that? Yeah, well, it's... it's you know, it's, it's the only business they have, so they've got to keep going with it, but things, events can turn turn against them, and so they don't end up making money, uh, but they've got to keep going. So uh, particularly this is true even in America, where there is so much fracking going on, and, uh, you know, not, they're not just producing gas, but also oil from these fracked wells, and the oil prices are pretty good right now, but still there have been studies done that show that over the last eight years or whatever, you know, all the frackers over in America, they haven't made any money. Um, so it's a bit of a, a Ponzi scheme, if people are familiar with that with that term. Uh, interest rates are really low right now, so there's a lot of money about. And banks and others look around. They're like, "Well, how can we get? You know, who can we loan money to?" And uh, the fossil fuel industry will put up their hand. And so there's no problem getting the money, but the actual returns, the actual uh, profit, is not there mm-hmm. uh, because it's very expensive to do this fracking, uh, you know, particularly in remote places like the Northern Territory. And if they only do find gas, well, gas is, you know, gas is not what they're really looking for. They'd like to be producing oil because that's much easier to handle and more valuable. And so if you're only into the gas business, then, um, you know, you're not going to be making any of the fabulous profits that you make in the oil industry. And that's been the problem with the uh, liquefied natural gas export plants in in Queensland uh, that the companies up there have has built uh, all tapping into the coal seam gas. The coal seam gas is just the methane. It doesn't have any oil associated with it, so there's no money from oil. And uh, companies such as BHP, you know, decided a long time ago not to get into the coal seam gas because they didn't see that it would be profitable, and um, they've been proven correct on that point. Mm. So really it's the oil that's – it's not really hidden, but it's not the main subject, is it, when anyone talks about this lifting the uh, fracking moratorium? Yes, the, um, and I pointed that out to the inquiry. I said, you, you've got an inquiry here into the production of the gas, but uh, you need to be looking at the oil as well because that's the real target. So they totally missed that. And I think the, um, the oil and gas companies don't like to mention the oil. They, they, they don't mind mentioning the gas because they, they think there's some sort of social license that they can achieve by producing gas. You know, gas will keep you warm in the winter. Uh, we're running out of gas. Oh. You need to fill up the gas pipelines across the country with yeah. gas. None of those things are true. No. But it does. And, and they can talk about, well, if we, 
if we're allowed to frack the entire countryside, well, then maybe the price of gas will come down. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas no one would believe them if they said, if we frack the whole countryside, the price of oil will come down. They realize that oil is traded on the international market, and regardless of what happened in, in Australia, um, the price, they're not going to impact the price of oil, mm-hmm. and neither are they going to impact the price of gas, because these days Australia is tied and connected to the international gas market, just like oil. And so really, regardless of how much gas they produce in Australia, it's not going to be making it any cheaper to heat your home. And by the way, the cheapest way to heat your home is to use a reverse cycle air conditioner anyway. It doesn't use any gas. No. Look, well, thank you so much for telling us all of this. It's a very dense information, but also thank you for telling the scientific inquiry. It sounds like they really had their heads in the sand and didn't want to hear from you at all but and they they took on board a couple of your points but they went ahead and recommended this um moratorium be lifted and it has been lifted but and i thought well just tell very briefly can you tell us about the offsets i thought that was really amusing well we we did point out the whole climate business and uh there was organized a letter signed by a whole bunch of australian climate scientists and, and health professionals and others sent to the inquiry saying, look, you can't be approving another major fossil fuel province because of, you know, climate change is already killing people. So between their draft report and their final report, they did put a lot more in about climate change and took more notice of it. And they said, you know what, uh, we'll just offset anything that uh, gets produced from the Northern Territory. Uh-huh. And, you know, offsets uh, can have their problems, but... So basically, the Northern Territory, as one of the recommendations, has to go and set up its own some sort of offsetting system that, you know, just yet to be uh, seen what that's meant to look like. So that mm. that was, uh, you know, climate change was easily swept uh, swept under the rug, saying that uh, we'd just be able to offset it all. Yeah, well, and that's not really the point. We don't need no. to be offsetting emissions. It, we need to be reducing emissions. Definitely full, not. Full I know. Stop. And, 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 and I don't think really they could if they quantified it, as you explained, you can actually quantify it. I don't know if they could offset. Anyway, look, thank you so much, Tim, for telling us and thank you for doing that work of, you know, presenting to a scientific inquiry. It's really important. All of this underpins the action that then people take. They need to get their facts right. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So now we'll have a little break, which is an ad for Lock the Gate Alliance um, and their campaigns, and then we'll go to Northern Territory. If you were the New South Wales government, where would you let a mining company put a dirty new coal mine? A, in a picturesque heritage-listed valley. B, rich horse-breeding country. Mm. C, on some of the best farmland in New South Wales. Mm. Or perhaps D, groundbreaking research. Perhaps in one of Australia's top ten tourist drives. Or maybe F, all of the above. If you pick F, you pick the magnificent Bylong Valley. You'd think Kepco and the New South Wales government would know that the beautiful Bylong Valley is no place for a dirty coal. Even a kid knows that. But they just don't get it. So let's be sure to tell them. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Tonight we're talking about fracking and uh, calcium gas and the Northern Territory and at the end we'll go further south to the South Australian uh, fracking. So our guest is Sharma Loy. She's the Director of the Northern Territory Environment Centre in Darwin and they've just called on the Northern Territory Government to get a comprehensive climate policy. So welcome, Shah. Hello, good afternoon. What's the weather like where you are? Wow, I mean, it's pretty warm today. I think we've had a, um, you know, we're really seeing that shift from the dry season to slowly starting to build up and we even had some rain this morning, which is highly unusual for 
August. So it wasn't much, but it was a few splashes. So oh. yes, it's definitely um, definitely getting warmer. Well, it's hot. It's cold in Melbourne, so we need a bit of warmth. But um, uh, you know, we've we've just heard a lot of detailed information about the scientific inquiry, which resulted in the green light being given to frack the Northern Territory starting in April, and. What was the public reaction to that lifting of your hard-worn moratorium on fracking? Well, I would say that um, that the majority of people here in the Northern Territory were incredibly disappointed and also incredibly angry that they had voted in the Labor Party underneath, um, you know, under their um, under their moratorium. So there was, you know, definitely a lot of anger and disappointment around it it being lifted. I mean, there is also a minority of small voices that are calling on um, economic development at all costs so um, you know those and sometimes those voices are louder given the media support that they receive was it downplayed in the election or was it a high visible issue no 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 it was absolutely a high visible issue and um, the northern Northern Government, Labor Gov, Labor Gov, Labor Gov. A shock and a surprise, we think, um, with kind of when they realise what a big issue it will also be at the next territory elections. They're a couple of years away, but um, there's absolutely um, lots of movement to be able to have candidates that absolutely support a ban on fracking. Yeah. Well, look, which groups achieved the moratorium? I'd like, I want to know which sort of um, industry areas or local groups would have achieved uh, wanted to have the moratorium on fracking. Yeah, I mean, we've been um, there's been a lot of organisations and groups um, for quite a long time um, working towards the um, the moratorium on fracking. So there's the the various environment centres, so Environment Centre NT, Arid Lands Environment Centre, Lock the Gate, Climate Action Darwin, um, and and also you know outspoken individuals as well and also um, you know they were also very much there were very outspoken Labor candidates that were absolutely pushing for the moratorium and you know they were those um, those you know Labor candidates that had subsequently got voted in you know will, will without a doubt um, receive a shock at the next election. Yeah well look um, I've been researching this a little bit and I found out that the Beetaloo Basin is really the hub of it. It's about 500 kilometres south of Darwin, where you are. And it sounds like it'll be the centre for trillions of cubic feet of gas with a pipeline from Tennant's Creek to Mount Isa, if it goes ahead. And I'm just hoping, mm. really, it won't go ahead, but that's what it yeah, looks we like. Yeah, all are. Yeah. That's for and sure. I wonder what, who are the Indigenous people, uh, probably different groups of people, but who are they and, and what are they saying about this? Because that's probably their traditional land. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we, we definitely prefer, um, you know, not to speak on behalf of those okay. communities. But, you know, certainly there's communities around in the Mataranka area and um, down into the, to the um, Elliot area. And um, again, you know, these, these issues can be dividing for communities where these kind of proposals are offered as, um, you know, potential avenues for services that should order, you know, that should actually just be basically provided to communities. They're, they're offered under, um, you know, these kind of developments. So there has nearly been a, um, an alliance that has been created called the NT Protect Country Alliance. And so that is, um, with kind of the, the affected Aboriginal communities joining together with also environmental organisations um, that are concerned about fracking. So you'll definitely be hearing more from the affected communities over time yes, as well. Yes, and thank you for telling me that you won't speak on behalf of them because I should I should know that. And I, if you could tip me off later on, you know, to I could interview in a future program, sure, I, I, I would like to follow this story because I'm just hoping we can turn this around. It's too massive. It's too terrible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, no, I can definitely put you in touch yeah, with some people from those affected communities. I'd yeah, love to talk to you. Yeah, and that's right. I'm in Melbourne, and this morning the news was Melbourne is going to have, is it only 5 million people? 5 million? Oh, 
they have five million people. They think we're already at five million people just in Melbourne. So where you mm. are, it's much sparser and much more lonely. I think for people trying to raise raise their heads above the parapet, really. So oh, absolutely, without a doubt. Yeah. So I'm trying to get city people listening to this program to support you, you know, and uh, support mm. people in remoter places where it's out of sight, out of mind, and it's easy for the media mm. to report it in any old way they'd like. But I want to hear from you and continue with this story but often I think local people emphasise they want, they're frightened of their water being contaminated and that's a huge fear for farmers or people who you know for whom groundwater is the main source they're yep. frightened of being contaminated or even just used up by coal mines mm. and you know the processes of industry but I, I wondered when you that's a sort of local effect, but when you approach the new, or you, you've got this um, demand for a comprehensive climate mm. policy, why didn't you directly demand that they ban um, opening up new oil and gas wells there? Yeah, I mean, this, the, our, our actual kind of campaign around um, opening up, um, I mean, it's, it's complex up here. It's, it's, and what we have is the Northern Territory government who's um, major economic development plans are based on onshore shale gas fracking and also the opening up of new um, offshore reserves to be processed here through Darwin and then, you know, ag- adding again an enormous amount of greenhouse gas emissions, mm. you know, through the processing of, of LNG. And, and we've heard about those crazy situations where, you know, potentially we have so much LNG being processed here and then exported and then imported back into Australia. It's an absolutely crazy situation. So I guess what what we're doing is um, is we've got various different campaigns. So we've absolutely got the the fracking campaign and also um, in our campaign regarding um, you know not 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 opening up any any new fossil fuel. Um, Reserve. It's, it's, you know, it's really tricky up here where, where the Northern yeah. Territory, um, you know, has a lot of pressure from the federal government to open up onshore shale gas reserves and also, um, is, you know, really facing a lot of economic, um, constraints as well. So yeah. there's a certain way of, you know, communicating that we need to be able to be very clear about the, what the impacts are of, um, of continuing down the path of opening up new gas reserves and then also being able to actually have the argument for what the alternatives are for how the Northern Territory could be leading the way for low carbon um, economies and oh, also yeah. really be leading the way in renewables and we're just way, way, way behind. So we, we've kind of got other actions as well where we're calling on the um, the ban for onshore shale gas fracking. Yeah. We've got a, a Rise to Climate rally um, march coming up um, on September the 8th as well. So I guess it's just it's part of a, yeah, a many-pronged approach. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It just seemed a bit timid, but I can see you're actually it's like tiptoeing around someone who's likely to explode. You've got all this pressure, so you've got to put it... Yeah. Um, Carefully, but listen, an enormous amount, of, and we wanted to really be able to encourage a, a, a big range yep. of Northern Territory yep. um, organisations to sign on to okay. it. Okay. Well, one of the articles you did send me, which I thought was terrific, was written by Dr. Elizabeth Hanna and Mark Ogue, who've both been on mm-hmm. this program, and it was called "Cooked." with gas and it gave so many descriptions of what it will be like for example just in Darwin and definitely Mm. other places in the tropics there uh, it told that that in Darwin which has now got 22 extreme heat days um, Mm. would in about 15 years time if emissions keep rising have 132 extreme heat days and you might think oh I like the hot weather but it's not like that it's hot all night too you can't sleep humidity and people start having heart attacks and and it's really impacts on their health much less if they're trying to work or if they're a cow or if they're a tourist just looking around in the in the outdoors it, it makes life impossible so tell us from that paper what you think what do you find the most horrifying about their findings about Darwin, for example. You know, there, there is, it's such a multi, multi-layered, um, I guess, um, impacts really. So you would you would potentially have impacts where the dry season would be shorter. So then, therefore, you have those times when the humidity increases, and so there's a longer period for the build-up. That would have um, extreme 
uh, impacts on tourism. So people come up here to the Northern Territory to get away from kind of the cold down there. But they also, I mean, the people that come here, you know, can't, can't cope with that humidity either. So the, the Northern Territory has been attractive because of that um, dry heat where it's much, um, you know, has much more um, comfort. It's much more comfortable. So you've got um, potential impacts on tourism. You've got impacts on agriculture. There's um, like mangoes need a certain um, reduced temperature to be able to flower. Um, you've got, I mean, partly the, the government is got a big push at the moment on population to get people to move here to the Northern Territory. Huh? They're not at all telling people about the predictions of the increases in temperature. And what we would be saying is to be able to actually encourage people to come here, then you really need to be having a vision of um, what's possible and how we can be addressing climate damage and not actually adding to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that in terms of people living here, then um, an enormous risk for that. There's also been studies about the impacts of um, trees. And so without having trees here in the, in the Darwin area to be able to keep it cool, then again, that just adds an enormity to, to the heat. It just goes on and on. And, and as it gets hotter, then people use their air conditioning more that then needs, you know, a great yeah. amount of resources to, <laughs> to um, so you just kind of get caught in, in a cycle. So, right. yeah, there's uh, immense pressures and also for people that are working outdoors. So, also, yes, it just yeah. sounds like, it, it sounds like a, a pressure cooker. And I think there is mm. already a, you can see a spike in domestic violence in most cities where, or places where, mm. you know, the heat becomes intolerable and people start lashing out and the police are then called in and it's just like a, a, a big tsunami of events that just, you can't actually trace it back to climate change, but in fact it is, or can't trace it back oh, to fossil fuels. And, and I think, we, you know, the people who are, uh, have the fossil fuel, the shale oil, gas money in their mind, that's in box A, but in box B you've got mm. the battered wife and the... You know, the tired out people in the emergency department and the people dying and so on in a separate Mm. box, keeping it separate like that. Uh, I don't know how we can communicate it differently, but that um, cooked with gas. Yeah, I mean, I guess our, yeah, sorry. I mean, I guess our kind of, you know, part of our, our strategies is to actually really be able to communicate that there's absolutely an alternative. We don't, I mean, the Northern Territory has the highest solar radiance in the world, one of the highest solar radiances, and we've got one of the least amount of renewables here in Australia. It's a crazy situation. We're having situations where people um, are protesting solar farms being built on potentially, you know, agricultural land down south in Queensland. There's, you know, there's enormous potential here for a vast array of renewables, but this government just, you know, isn't choosing that pathway and to the absolute detriment for um, you know, for people here, and and often it's the most vulnerable and the poorest in our community that won't be able to cope with these increased mm. temperatures. People in the remote communities cannot just switch on air yeah. conditioning and cope with potentially you know forty five degree days as it gets kind of further down mm. south. And mm. yeah, I mean, it, it it really is a crazy situation where where the government. Um, he is absolutely ignoring the situation and um, certainly isn't doing anything about it at the moment. All right. Well, thank you for your initiative there. And we'll link it to our web um, our, you know, podcast page. And I think BZE has already supported your initiative to um, ask the Northern Territory Government to have a clear climate policy because that's what they need. Yes. And um, yeah. we'll, we'll support you. So thanks very much, yes. Shah. We've been talking. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thank Lovely. You. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It, that was Shah Malloy from the Northern Territory Environment Centre. Now, we're going to go on to David Smith. Have we got another little bit of music? Uh, yeah, I'll play a short station ID. Thank you. Hi. Hi. We're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. On 8.55am. Here we are back again at the Beyond Zero Emission Show. Have you got your answers to my quiz, listeners? Who wrote The Silent Spring and what is the meaning of the word Santos? You can send the message you know, to Radio Team. Email me at radioteam at bze.org.au. 
sure some of you know both of those already. Uh, so David Smith is our next guest. He's a fifth-generation true blue Aussie farmer, and he produces beef and prime lamb just north of Mount Gambia in the tiny percentage of South Australia that is suitable for intensive agriculture. When he realised that the state government was actually offering farmers I think 10% of the royalties if they allowed fracking on their farms in the food bowl, he got active. So welcome, David. Hello, how are you, Vivian? I'm good, thank you. And tell us just for the interest, what's the weather like at your place? Uh, A few days of sunshine uh, after a reasonably wet winter. So our heart goes out to all of those well north of you there that are struggling, especially in New South Wales. Oh, yes. I live in Sydney and I I travelled all through that land to get here and it is dire, 100% drought declared. Yeah. Oh, look... uh, my heart certainly goes out to them. We've had the odd dry year. Uh, in 67, we had a drought. Um, but, uh, yeah, some of the poor people up there, crikey, uh, year after year after year. And uh, sadly, eventually, a few of them say, well, we've had enough of that. Um, so as much as we can help them, we will. And uh, we hope they get through it, yeah. Well, that's what I like about farmers, that they're sort of networked. There's a lot of, I've interviewed a lot of regenerative farmers, and, they, and I say, how do, how do these ideas spread? They say, oh, well, we, you know, we network, we have weekends at different farms, and all the different ideas are spread and techniques. And I wonder with this thing about fracking on the land, there must be quite a network of people now from Queensland down to where you are who already know what fracking on farmland looks like. Uh, certainly there is uh, word has got around very much uh, our appreciation to the national organisation Lock the Gate uh, and, and they've helped uh, set up a number of splinter groups uh, small groups, uh, community groups uh, all around Australia so um, yeah certainly word gets around very smartly when uh, uh, especially when bad news is coming out. Yeah. Well, city listeners might not know how risky it is. What do you say to them when someone says, oh, well, you could have a few gas wells on your farm, why not? Well, uh, with uh, first of all, look, hey, I'm a farmer. I'm, I, I don't see myself as an expert, uh, but certainly I've done uh, now thousands of hours of research into this simply because I've been concerned at what I first uh, stumbled across and uh, so I've spoken to a lot of experts um, but over in America where shale has been fracked with the latest high volume high pressure hydraulic fracking technique that's only been developed in the last 15 or so years commercially uh, we're not talking about what was uh, been what has been done uh, in the last uh, some 50 odd 60 odd years ago that was pretty tame it's certainly the latest and now there is an increase in human birth defects where pregnant mothers are living within a few kilometres of gas wells mm-hmm. uh, there's a decrease in human birth weight uh, there's an increase in asthma attacks uh, there is considerable water contamination uh, particularly where methane has leaked into the water of town supplies and they can now no longer use their town water and I, I have sort of uh, spoken to people over in America with these problems I've been into houses where they can no longer use their town water they speak of having had nice clean tap water is no longer available they uh, cannot drink it so certainly there's some major problems um my research has been very much to do with the unconventional gas and mm. we certainly hope that, that doesn't come into these regions well i hadn't told the listeners the name of your film but it's called pipe dreams fractured lives which is a very clever title and i just looked at the trailer which is on the internet and people that you interviewed in the USA and in Queensland said they had been manipulated and that they felt they'd been sacrificed and I wondered why do you feel, why do they feel so desperate just to turn the clock back to the time before the gas industry ever arrived? Yeah look, um, gee whiz we interviewed uh, something like 48 people in grand total and then when it came time to produce the film we had to 
edit it down to uh, we end up with a 67 minute film so it is a feature length film yeah. um, and some of those people oh, gee whiz uh, it, it is simply honestly uh, heartbreaking uh, the stories that they've got there was two of the interviews I just had to uh, stop and walk away I just uh, yeah there's some there's some uh, heartache has been in those areas and um, yeah, look, those but this people thing are, of being manipulated. What what were they told that they'd make a lot of money out of this, or were they were they just not told that it was going to happen upstream uh, from where they lived? Well, certainly the common thing is that they're not told of the downsides. Um, you know, the uh, the uh, promotion is oh look, this could bring uh, money. You know, think of the money you could, what could you do with an extra few thousand dollars or an extra hundred thousand dollars? And they start getting people thinking of the positive side of things. And yes, there might be a bit of money for some people, um, but by gee, down the years, down after a few years, uh, people have found out that, whoa, hang on, uh, things have changed now and we're locked in a contract. We can't get out. And so now, uh, as the gas tapers off, uh, at times in America, they're caught with being sent bills. So uh, it is just a minefield, the uh, amount of uh, legal action that has taken place over there, people suing gas companies. Um, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. And the human health aspects that have creeped in, that uh, have cropped up uh, since... Uh, gas has come into people's regions and not necessarily within a few hundred kilometres we're talking people being impacted within a few kilometres so major problems Well look the local impacts are very bad but as one of the farmers in your film said this industry won't stop at your boundary and I think he just meant it'll go underground to the next guy's boundary if so you, you sign a contract but the next guy will get it but I for me that means this won't stop at just the boundary of you know South Australia or Northern Territory or Queensland or somewhere like that that it will it will go out into the upper atmosphere when it, you know the gas is actually exported and will affect climate change and the climate impact of that gas I, I feel is the main argument I know the local impact is just so overwhelming that's all people can talk about I would too if I lived there with my tap water being going on fire but I I wouldn't be able to think of anything else but seeing as I'm living in a big city I'm looking at the climate impact and we've just had Tim Forsey at the beginning of this program telling us that, you know the the Northern Territory gas for example if they start exporting that that's that'll make the Adani coal mine impact look like nothing and yeah. it's massive <coughs> it's trillions of you know whatever the um, cubic feet of gas there so the, the climate impact is meaning that each of those individuals who's suffering locally is multiplied by the millions yeah and certainly the figures are massive uh, and in particular when we're talking methane escaping into the atmosphere uh, it's argued that that's uh, I've, I've heard figures 87 to 100 times as more harmful than carbon dioxide so it, it is a massive problem there was one world that um uh, leaked, uh, just uh, blew out in America, and it took them four months to seal that well up. Um. And that was after I originally took a delegation over to America for South Australian state politicians, a doctor and a vet. So that was where mm. I did a lot of my learning prior leading up to that trip and on that trip. And when we were over there in June 2015, a gentleman from... Uh, energy in depth, a little bit like Appia over here. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, in other words, the industry voice, you might say, said, oh, yes, uh, there's been some problems in the past, but in the last few years now, we've been using world, uh, <laughs> world-class standards, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was shortly after that, when I get home, that, number one, uh, this well blew out, took them four months to seal it up. It was just a massive blowout and then the other one was um, uh, we visited Pittsburgh while we were over there and stayed there for a couple of days 
and the headlines came, I think, two weeks after we got back that there was high radioactive uh, levels detected in the uh, river leading into the Pittsburgh water supply. So, and that was traced to um, wastewater being dumped in the um, um, sort of public yeah. uh, treatment, and, and nothing can treat radioactive water. It's it's contaminated mm. for what is it, uh, one thousand six hundred years? I can't wait. You know, yeah. well, major problems. So yeah, so you've seen the problem, and you took the vet. You went with a vet, and what did you say, politicians and a doctor? To yes, get these uh, different types four, of impact. Politicians, a doctor, a vet, and a few others. Yeah. Um, and yet, when you come back to South Australia, the, it sounds like the government there wants to promote more fracking on farmland. It seems, doesn't the message get through? Or has your film not been released yet, maybe? Uh, no, the film's been released, and, and we're certainly uh, slowly pushing it, working it around. Uh, people are requesting it. People can request if any of your listeners are uh, interested in the film being shown locally, if they can team up with one of the environmental groups or uh, some friends, request a screening through Fan Force. Um, just Google that and request screen be shown locally. That's one yeah. option. People can give me a ring, uh, speak to me personally. I can give you that number, 429 393 one five three. Okay. Um, and uh, but yes, you're right. Certainly, the uh, at the time that I did the first trip over to America, the South Australian Labor uh, government uh, here were very keen on fracking in the southeast. Uh, I had a meeting with a twenty minute meeting with the the time the treasurer of South Australia, yes. uh, Tom Coutsantonis, yes. uh, the Labor treasurer, and uh, he immediately replied after I explained everything as quickly as and well as I could uh, that I'd learned, he said, if half of what you say is true, there won't be any fracking in the southeast. And it wasn't too long after that that the Victorians, thankfully, uh, encouraged their Labor government to ban unconventional gas and uh, put a moratorium on conventional gas. And Tom Coots and Tonus stood on his uh, chair and said, come on over to South Australia. Oh. So uh, it, it doesn't uh, really matter at times what you do say to some politicians. they just got their blinkers on. Um, but the thing we do have to be very careful of is that even when you do get a moratorium, and that's thankfully... We've had a change of government here. The Liberal government have promised a moratorium, but now we're fighting trying to get that locked in legislation. And I understand in Victoria uh, a lot of people are concerned that there could be a change of heart or even a change of government uh, there, which may change the equation for Victorians. Well, all I can say to you is I think people do change their heart when they see a film and I was telling the listeners at the beginning of that film called The Bentley Effect about the people up in the Northern Rivers and that just is so you just really understand that people like yourself and groups and networks of people can actually change whether it's changing things permanently and into legislation is another subject because it's so slippery and there's so much money and so much political power I think behind this industry isn't there? Oh there is indeed but but certainly the public pressure I mean the the public pressure <coughs> did bring about the change in Victoria initially. It definitely did. And then no doubt it would have contributed to the change of government in uh, South Australia. Yeah. But like the thing um, that I say for people in cities, if they can just give a bit of thought uh, that if our uh, soil, air, water was to be contaminated in the country regions, it's effectively our soil, air and water that ends up on your tables in the cities in the form of dairy, wine, meat, fruit and veggies. Mm. So it is a concern for all of us, uh, both city and country. Uh, I put my heart into producing good quality meat and uh, produce from my farm. I've uh, had crops in the past and uh, if, if our water air or soil 
it's contaminated, well, clearly uh, that starts to move off move on uh, into the food chain and that was expressed to us very clearly in America that they've got problems there where clearly there's widespread contamination and they're very aware that that the problem has to be moving into the food chain so it is a major major issue. Well well, okay well look it's been terrific talking to you and I can hear the seriousness and gravity in your voice so you've done your best and made this film. Listeners it's called Pipe Dreams fractured lives and as uh, David said he felt like walking away sometimes the stories were so heartbreaking so that's to show the people there on the front line but really on the other front line in the resistance against all of this is people like Lock the Gates and they are very well organised we played a little clip and I'm going to play a, um, read a message from them after we've said goodbye to you David but please listeners uh, go to the B- B- BZE website and the podcast it'll be available tomorrow it'll have links to David's film and um, Lock of the other things we've mentioned tonight. So thank you, David, for speaking to us. No worries. Thank you. People only need Google Pipe Dreams Fractured Lives and they can go to the uh, Facebook page or the website and, uh, yeah, get some more information. That would be great. Thank you very much for the time. That's super. Thank you very much. Okay, so just towards the end here, I'd, I'd just like to read you something to change the tone a little bit more. Here's a statement by Rachel Carson, whose book, Silent Spring, changed the path of the environmental movement. And I just found this quote yesterday, I just thought it absolutely hits the nail on the head. She said, We stand now where two roads diverge. But unlike the roads in Robert Frost's familiar poem, they are not equally fair. The road we have long been travelling is deceptively easy, a smooth superhighway on which we progress with great speed, but at its end lies disaster. The other fork in the road, the one less travelled, offers our last, our only chance to reach a destination that assures the preservation of the earth. And that was written in the 1960s. So I think it still tells us where we're at. We're at that fork in the road and these big mega schemes with such political power behind them are out there ready to pounce and we, as we think with the... um, uh, Lock the gates have to change. Andy's giving me the wind-up scheme. So I have to thank the guests tonight, Tim Forsey, Shah Malloy and David Smith. Thank you to the team, Roger on podcasts, Andy, who's the producer, and my name's Vivian Langford. Send your answers to the quiz to radio team at bze.org.au. And Andy, could you just play a small, a bit of a tiny bit of music, and then I want to read one more message from Lock the Gates. Awake before the dawn Within the spires of range Where magpies ornate melodies And brave a chilly morning breeze Beneath the towering was Eco Pella and I've now found a message from Lock the Gates. This is called the People's Referendum on Coal and Gas. In the lead up to the New South Wales state election in March, people around the state are getting ahead of the police and casting their vote in a people's referendum on coal and gas. I think that could apply in Victoria, even though we've got a moratorium here. Um, Lock the Gate is collecting thousands of ballots. It's like a voting. You're voting for something to show the politicians that we want a future with clean food, water and energy. It's time to choose. Will you cast your vote for change? Now, if you've got a pen there, it'll be attached to our website, to the podcast, but the um, place to vote online now is lockthegate.org.au slash people's referendum. And the other thing that Lock the Gate wanted me to mention is on September the 8th, I'll talk about it again next week, it's uh, two Saturdays away, it's called Rise for Climate and it's a global thing. Real climate leadership rises from the grassroots up. Well, we know that, don't we? <laughs> Local action is leading the way. Be part of the movement that's ending the era of fossil fuels and building 100% renewable energy for all. Find an event near you by visi- visiting, this is a web site riseforclimate.org
org, and if you go there, you'll find a, a, a you know um, there's about five of them on in Melbourne. I noticed Taralgon and and all sorts of other ones in Victoria. There's loads in a, all different places in Australia, but this is a worldwide thing. You'll find all people all over the world will be rising for climate on that Saturday, the eighth of September. So thank you, Andy, especially and for everybody oh, who participated. No it's always a pleasure. <laughs> it's a pleasure for me too. We got through such a lot of information. It feels a bit like a seminar to me, but really, I didn't know much about fracked gas and Northern Territory Moratorium <laughs> until I heard Tim Forsey speak and then I followed up and there's that what they're actually doing in the Northern Territory and that farmer who's made a film there's loads of people so really keen to get ahead on this, no time to be sitting back and saying there's nothing we can do, so thank you very much, see you next week Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation we design blueprints for a zero emissions economy as climate change action becomes an emergency Leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au or even write to us, care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention BZE Radio.